in Acts the sixth chapter. We're going to read the first seven verses uh, that'll uh, introduce the event I want for us to look at uh, this morning. Now, in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, uh, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid, laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. When we study events, and we've been studying events in the Old Testament, I think this, we've mentioned this as well in, in that context, but when we study events in the Bible, I believe that there is a question that we should always ask, and that is, why is this event included in the inspired record? Obviously, the Bible doesn't include every event. Some things are omitted. So we need to take notice of the things that are included in the inspired record and try to make an assessment of why uh, the Lord wanted us to see this, uh, and know about this and maybe to the point what is the fundamental point the author is making what is being brought to us besides just historical fact what does the event tell us uh, and make application to ourselves and I think it's an important thing to do here in Acts chapter 6 why is this event included one way I think to come to uh, uh, better understand what takes place here and to make application is as always to look at the context Luke is the historian, and as the historian, he provides, I believe, in the terms of the first chapters of Acts, a very positive image and report on the spread of the gospel. Luke has told us, beginning in chapter 2, that God's fulfilling his promise in the bringing about of of uh, the preaching the gospel um, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and, and the establishment of the Lord's church. Well, how's it doing? How is the, how is the spreading of the gospel uh, uh, being uh, successful or is it not being successful? And I think one thing we recognize in terms of the context is one recurring statement in Luke's treatise on the early church is that the church was growing. And so I want to present that here as the context of this event. We'll see how that plays into the meaning of the event itself. But to recognize that what Luke is emphasizing in the early chapters here is that the church is growing. Uh, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, after the preaching of the gospel for the first time, uh, Luke says those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, in verse 47, he says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, in chapter 4 verse 4 again, he takes account and says that the number of the men came to be about 5,000. In chapter 5 and verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, he says in Acts chapter 5. So when we look at that together, we recognize that's what certainly Luke is presenting, is that though there have been obstacles in the way, and again we'll talk about those obstacles, that throughout this, in the first five chapters of Acts, the church is growing. And that becomes, I think, the context of the events of chapter 6. And the reason I would say that is that that the event itself is sandwiched between two very similar statements by Luke. 
both before and after the event that we just read, Luke states that the church is growing. In chapter 6, verse 1, now in the days the disciples were increasing in number, and then at the end of the event, he again references that and says the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem after what takes place in chapter 6. So I'm convinced that these are not just arbitrary statements, that they follow the very pattern that Luke has established in talking about the early church. Then they also form, in terms of where they're at in the text, they form the context from which we are to understand the event of Acts 6 and the problem or the obstacle that needed to be solved. So the church was continuing to grow, but it was continuing to grow despite obstacles and troubles that came along its way. And that's what this event is all about. Will the church continue to grow or will things get in the way? Will there be a stumbling block? Will something come that will disrupt all of that? How will the early church overcome these obstacles that it faces and still grow in spite of them? And so we think about why this event is here. I believe the text would tell us that. It would give us that picture. It's here to get us to understand that God's church did grow and that God's people were able to overcome great obstacles that were placed before them, sometimes in very subtle ways to get them distracted from what ultimately they were to be doing. And yet God's direction through the apostles provided the solution to those problems. Well, what does this event talk about? What is it introduced to us? Well, if you remember, it says here that there was a complaint that arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected uh, in the daily distribution. Now, when we think about this aspect of what's presented here, we recognize that uh, some complaints, not all complaints are the same. Some complaints that people bring are uh, somewhat uh, trivial or inconsequential or that they really don't matter, and sometimes we might dismiss them as things that don't really matter. And then sometimes people complain about things that are real, that something is brought to a person's attention that really needs to be taken care of and dealt with. It's not hard to notice, I think, when we look at, as we mentioned in the early chapter of Acts, that the Lord's church faced opposition. They faced obstacles all the way along. Uh, the arrest and the imprisonment of the apostles in chapter four and verse five, when the leaders of the uh, in chapter four and five, when the leaders of the church you see were put in prison and brought you see to be questioned, the Inquisition before the Sanhedrin, now, that could really get in the way when your leaders are brought uh, you see to those type of oppositions. And then in chapter five, there's the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Then not only is there opposition from without, but there's trouble from within. When people are not living up to the pledge that they've made, and this hypocrisy then, as eleven, has the opportunity to grow in the church. Throughout all of that, though, what we notice is, the, is that Luke would tell us that the church grew. And this event chronicles, I believe, another obstacle that's placed before the church, and it comes in the form of a complaint. And as I said, not all complaints are the same, but they are this put this particular complaint that's brought has serious implications for the first century church. I want us to notice the threat itself and then to notice as well how the text would tell us that they overcame this problem in order to continue to grow as God would want them to grow. What did this represent? That the the Hellenistic Jews would come and complain to the apostles that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, it certainly presented a threat to the unity of the church. The complaint that was brought to the apostles revealed a conflict that existed not just within the church but actually had been was present within the culture in which the church was born. 
that what's presented here in terms of the conflict was not just restricted to Christians. It was something that existed before these folks were Christians, even from the standpoint of their perception of their religion itself in terms of being Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, as some translation called them, were Greek-speaking Jews. They were Jews that lived outside of particularly Judea, that had been uh, that had been raised or certainly had been influenced by Greek culture, and therefore not only did they speak the Greek language, but no doubt uh, had been influenced by uh, the Greek philosophers and the Greek culture of its day. And then there were Jews that were from Judea, uh, that were from Jerusalem, that were more orthodox in their understanding of, of the Scriptures, but who more to the point were Jews who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Now you think about that from the standpoint of cultures. Does language make a difference? Uh, does it make any difference what language people speak or how they communicate? Does the fact that, that a person speaks a different language almost immediately perceive, make us perceive that they're not one of us because they don't speak our language? Now they might speak our language in another language, but the fact that there's a difference in the language, even though we may look the same and may even share religion, might very well, you see, be a mark of division that is inherent within the people that claim to be together. And so what we recognize here is that when the Hellenists complained that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that what it, what it really presents to us here is that this was a complaint that had to do not just with the simple distribution of food, but that, that what was taking place here was the, the discrimination against one individual as opposed to other individuals. Now that's brought before, the, I believe, the apostles in exactly that way, and we'll talk about why, why the text might apply that to us. This was a serious matter because it had to do with the aspect of the unity of the Lord's people. The Jewish community took great uh, pride and responsibility in taking care of the widows, and they took that very seriously. And so for those who were Christians to come, those who were Jews to come in the context of this and say, our widows are not being taken care of, was to present from the Jewish frame point a very serious problem. And there were a lot more Hebrew widows in Palestine than Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows. And so it would be something that would have to be taken care of carefully from the standpoint of the ideas that already existed. So the cultural divide of the society, even the society of the Jewish religion, would impact the church in Jerusalem, and that should not surprise us. Cultural divides that exist today, things that individuals are not the same on, does it have an impact in the church today? Is this something that might pose a threat to the church and the unity of the church if these things that were present in society became, you see, present in the church, visible in the church, and someone raised a complaint about that? It's difficult to leave behind the emotions and the prejudices that we might have even as we become children of God. And so we think about this. If this problem is left unsolved, if the, if the, if the apostle just ignored this and say, ah, oh, that's not a big deal, What's the potential? What's the threat? Well, this could divide the church and so that a few years down the road you have a Hellenistic church and you have a Hebrew church. You have individuals going their separate ways because they perceive a division, they perceive a discrimination, you see, within the confines of how the church operates that leaves them, you see, separated. And so left unsolved, this particular problem had the potential to divide the church. Now, what I think we had to recognize is often when we read through this passage, we highlight the fact that the apostles uh, decided not to get personally involved. That they say, well, we're not going to do this, we're going to give it to somebody else to do. And we highlight that they're unwilling, that their decision not to get personally involved as being, as, as maybe referencing the aspect that this was a lesser problem. 
that the apostles had more important things to take care of, we'll give this to somebody else because that's not such, that, that's so, so, sort of an insignificant physical, physical problem and somebody else can take care of that. Now certainly somebody else can take care of that, but I think we have to be careful about taking that approach. There are two points that certainly, I think, indicate to us the seriousness of this problem and why it was not something to be easily dismissed, why it certainly was a threat to the church. One was that the apostles agreed to address it immediately. They didn't say, oh, it doesn't matter. Nor did they in any way doubt the fact that these things were very possibly going on. They didn't conclude that it would solve itself, that we could just leave it alone, or that the complaint somehow was unfounded. Now, it doesn't specifically give us instances of this discrimination, or it doesn't necessarily point up the aspect that was an intentional discrimination. It just seems to point out that the complaint was that some of the widows who seemingly were Hellenistic widows were being, you see, um, neglected in the daily distribution. But what the apostles did is significant. That in the presence of this complaint, they immediately gathered the disciples together and they sought a solution to the problem. The other thing that points to the seriousness of the threat here is that when the apostles decided to solve the problem by the appointment of men to take care of this business, that they appointed spiritual men. That not just any Grecian Christian man would do. Not just any Christian man would do. That the idea here was that these were me men, as the text says, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. They are to be individuals in the congregation who were already respected by the people that they were serving. They were individuals that had shown a submissiveness to God. I believe that's what's involved in terms of the idea of being full of the Holy Spirit. That they were individuals that were being influenced by the Holy Spirit. And they were men who were able to make prudent decisions that when put in the position of making decisions, they were wise and could sort out the details and apply spiritual principles. So these spiritual qualifications that are given by the apostles confirm to us that this was a serious spiritual problem. Not just that it was a matter of, of logistics. Well, how do we get the food here and how do we get the food there? That what was taking place here was the resolving of a problem that had spiritual implications that was a serious threat to the church, to the unity of the church. And if we didn't put the right people in charge of this, this thing could really be bad. So the fact that they appointed these type of men was a recognition that this demanded a spiritually oriented solution to the problem. Now I say that not so we can just understand the seriousness of the threat to Jerusalem at this time, but understand that's what true leadership does. One element of true leadership is that those who are in charge are able to determine and discern between something that's a serious spiritual threat to God's people and something that really doesn't matter. Was this something that didn't really matter? Would it go away by itself? Would it resolve itself? Or would it take decisive action? And what type of people should be put in charge of this? And so what I would suggest to you by the text here is that this was a serious threat to the unity of the church if it was not solved. But also it was a threat to the mission of the church. The church was still under the personal leadership of the apostles and we dare not overlook that fact. Later on churches would be guided and it would be led by by men, by elders who were appointed to the task. But in Jerusalem here, whether or not there were elders at this particular time we don't know. They later on are in Acts 15. But the decision of how to solve this problem is uh, is brought to, to view by the apostles themselves. Now you think about the church. If the apostles were still here, if we were the church at Jerusalem, if the apostles were worshiping among us and they were here and they were teaching the Bible classes and they were doing the preaching and they were guiding the, you see, the personal work programs, what could possibly threaten the mission of that church where the apostles were in charge? 
The church, the, the, the apostles themselves had already been in prison. They'd already been taken before the local authorities and thrown in jail. They'd already faced persecution from the outside. And, and all of that, it tells us that they did not cease and desist, that they preached the Word of God day in and day out, publicly and from house to house. So here you have leaders of the church who have already shown the courage and the stamina and the spiritual guidance to stand up to outside persecution, and they're making the choices for the church. What could Satan possibly do to that church with that kind of leadership? Well, I think Acts 6 is the answer to that question. Did Satan have anything else up his sleeve? Was he done yet in terms of trying to threaten the church? I believe he was more interested in disrupting the preaching of the Word of God than in anything else in the early chapters of Acts. If there's anything Satan wanted to do, it was to get the apostles to not teach the Word of God. That's what he tried to get the the Sanhedrin to do. To get them to stop. Don't preach in his name anymore. And the apostles said, well, we're going to do it. Whether you like it or not, we're going to obey God rather than men. So they went about preaching the Word of God despite the government officials telling them not to. But what Acts 6 points out to me is that Satan wasn't done. That this, in essence, was his next ploy. To get the apostles to solve the problem, this very threatening social, spiritual problem, to get them to solve it, but to solve it in the wrong way. To redirect their attention to something that was a very serious matter to the point that they would neglect to do what they had been doing, and that was preaching the Word of God. The text would imply to us that the complaint comes to the apostles from the Christians at Jerusalem, that they bring this to the apostles, and that might imply to us, you see, that they do this because they believe that the apostles are the ones who can solve it. That makes sense. And so what they're saying, those who are bringing the complaint, is we need you to take care of this need. We need you to stop this neglect. We need you to make sure this inequality doesn't go on. Notice the Apostle's answer in chapter 6, verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That's what the Apostles say. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word. Now, I read, I read that from the different translations, and nearly every translation I read it from, it sounded a little defensive to me. Do you? That when the apostles make this reply, make this reply that maybe there was, as the complaint was brought to them, maybe there was sort of the, the insinuation that you're responsible for this or that you should take care of this, and the apostles are defending themselves as the ones who will not be involved in personally taking care of the problem because they have a different job, a different responsibility. The word translated as right here is the word arestos, which is translated as pleasing or desirable. Sometimes it's used to talk about what's pleasing to men. But most times it's talked about, particularly in apostolic teaching, it's talked about the aspect of what's pleasing to God. And I believe that's what the apostles are saying here, is that We know that it would not be pleasing to God. It would not be right for us to stop preaching the Word of God in order to serve tables. So the apostles are defending their personal responsibility to preach the Word and to pray in the context of a complaint that they weren't doing something to solve this problem. And that's what gives me the perception here that this is Satan's ploy, not in the sense that that, that he has cause the problem or that the complaint is addressing, but rather the idea that there are some times in which temptations come to us in the context of doing good and the solution to the problem. The term wait on tables here, in some translations, I think the New King James Version, the ESV says, serve tables. 
might make us think of a guy bringing us a meal at a restaurant to wait on tables. Who's your waiter? Who waits on your table? It's the guy who brings you the food, right? And maybe collects the money afterwards. But the idea of tables here was a word in the original language that not, did not necessarily always involve the aspect of a table that you eat on, but rather had to do with the aspect of a banking table. You remember when Jesus went into the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers? So sometimes the word is used to describe those who would sit at a table and exchange money or conduct business. And it might very well denote that what was involved in solving this problem was waiting on tables or distributing money or making sure that things were bought and sold in such a way that there could be a distribution that would be made to the widows who were in need. So here you have a task. Not only have the task of actually getting the food where it needed to go, but maybe involved in terms of the language itself, someone who had the experience of being able to purchase what needed to be purchased and do it in an honorable way, and to actually carry on a ministry of taking care of the widows. Now that's an important ministry, isn't it? We just mentioned the aspect that the Jews in their own religion took it very seriously, the care of the widows and the orphans and those who could not take care of themselves. And we find here in the early church that that as well is a high priority among Christians. But what's presented to us in this context, as important as a ministry is that it is, is the apostles make a distinction that this is not as high as a priority as the preaching of the Word of God and in prayer. It certainly points to us the aspect that the apostles saw themselves as individuals who would not leave one ministry to attend to another. Now there's something in the text, I believe, that might imply to us that this was a part of the spiritual threat that was posed to the church within this complaint. And that's when Luke, in describing this to us, links the aspect of the Word of God, both in the beginning and the end of the event. Remember in the beginning of the end, he also mentioned the aspect of the growth of the church because that was a part of the contextual lesson that the church was going to grow despite the obstacles that placed before it. But Luke links the aspect of the Word of God in verse 2 and the terminology of the Word of God in verse 7. The apostolic answer in verse 2 is that it would not be right to abandon or leave the word of God in prayer in order to serve tables. And then in verse 7 he reports the effect when they make that decision and they carry through that decision by putting this job in the hands of other individuals. He reports the effect of not leaving the word of God even for such an important ministry when he says the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So what's the text pointing out to us? is that here was, you see, a temptation for the apostles to be refocused or misdirected away from the preaching of the Word of God. Exactly what the Sanhedrin tried to do to the apostles earlier. It now comes in the form of a complaint, a legitimate complaint about inequality and injustice. Something the apostles could take care of and do it in all good conscience that they were doing what God wanted them to do by taking care of the widows. Yet the temptation comes to abandon one ministry a physical ser- uh, the band of ministry of preaching the word of God for a ministry of physical service and the apostles decide no we're not going to do that it would not be right for us to do that and Luke points out that they were correct that the church was able to overcome this particular problem and obstacle in their way because they did not refocus the ministry of the apostles in the preaching of the word of God for a physical ministry of taking care of the widows. So the continued growth of the church was because the apostles did not leave the spiritual mission of the church to focus on this problem, but they put their faith in the power of the Word of God and prayer, exactly where it had been all of this time. 
I would suggest that to you because I think it's important today that we recognize that principle. Whatever tempts us to leave off the preaching of the Word of God in prayer is a major threat to the spiritual mission of the church. And it is devil's ploy to get us to do that. However wonderful it might seem the church ought to do this, and however important it is even to the spiritual mission of the church that these things be done in a physical way, anything that disrupts or that gets in the way of the preaching of the Word of God is a threat to us. It's the very essence of our growth that as a church we continue to preach the Word of God and in the ministry of that, pray about that, that, that preaching. But let's look carefully at the solution. There's some things for us to learn and look at the apostolic decision here. In verse 5 and 6, as they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, they chose Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas. And these were men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. They set them before the apostles. They prayed. They laid their hands on them. We all notice that these seven men... I thought I had this up here. Uh, that we all notice that these seven men had Greek names. Sometimes that's pointed out in the text. Is that, that we look at the text. As you look at these seven men that were chosen, they all had Greek names. Now, is that significant? Well, one thing's for sure. It had been very unusual for a Hebrew-speaking Jew from Palestine to have a Greek name. So the fact that they, these men had Greek names might imply to us that these individuals were of the other group. They were of the complaining group. They were part of the Hellenistic Jews. Now whether or not they were individuals who actually brought the complaint, we can't possibly know. But when we th- aspect, the aspect here that the apostles chose out men who were a part of, you see, the cultural division that existed, the, the, the part of that cultural division that, had, that, that represented the people, you see, that were being neglected. The apostles were not afraid to do that. They were not afraid to put these Greek Hellenistic Jews in charge of the solution to the problem and what was causing division. There is no attempt here to take, you see, to take a vote to please the majority. There weren't, there, there's no occasion here where the Hebrew Christians would con- contend it and said, well, you know, there are more of us than there are of them. We need four Hebrew deacons and we need three Greek deacons. We need to make sure there's a fair representation. None of that's here, is it? In fact, you look at the names the apostles pointed out, give, give all of the solution to this problem to one side, so to speak, to the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, and said, here, you take care of this business. The focus was on solving the problem. And those you see who might be identified here might very well be those who most understood the problem, who were closest to the problem at hand actually, as, as it was actually happening. And they were to look out for the interest of those, you see, other Christians. Sometimes the question is asked, uh, were these seven men deacons? And I would suggest to you that we can't really know for sure. As Christians and scholars are somewhat divided in the answer to that. Uh, I think you probably realized from my lesson last week that I believe this is a, a case study of the appointment of deacons. But the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 are not listed here. The general character of the individuals that are mentioned would certainly fit into those qualifications. They are not referred to as deacons anywhere in this text. But they are appointed to the church to minister. The verb form of diakonos in verse 6 certainly brings that to mind. So I don't think it's unreasonable nor unscriptural to make this connection between the deacons that were appointed later on by the instruction of Paul and those you see who are appointed early in the church's history in Acts chapter 6. But whether we view these as proto-deacons or not, we should not overlook the use of the word diakonos in the text. These men were appointed to serve other Christians. That was the solution to the problem. It wasn't an edict or a law, but rather it was putting into place individuals who would actually get the job done by serving other Christians. They were to be servants. And as they did, the problem would be solved. 
What was not a problem? What was, or what was not the solution? The apostle didn't throw out the complainers. That could have happened and might very well happen in, some of the, in, in the way sometimes we approach these things today. As we mentioned, they took their, seri- their concerns seriously. They properly assessed the application of the Word of God to the circumstance. And they recognized this was something that needed to be taken care of. And leaders had that responsibility. They, didn't were, they were not offended. They didn't take this as personally. They didn't say, well, you know, you just think we're not doing our job. You don't need, if you don't like us, you just need to hit the road. If you don't like the way this church is run, if you don't like the way things are done, maybe you've got to find someplace else to go. They were able to discern between the expediency of a matter and personal preference and a real violation of God's will, and they realized that this was something that needed to be corrected, but then they did not take personal offense at the aspect that there was something that needed to be corrected. The church didn't shun those who were complainers. And again, this is sometimes something that happens easy for people to just ignore those who seem controversial. People who point out problems, who are always saying, well, this needs to be done. Now sometimes that's a, a, a sign of being hypercritical and something that the Word of God tells us not to be, and the Christian should not be, always looking for problems. But it's also a tendency sometimes to, to unconsciously, you see, hope that if we just ignore people like that, they'll go away or they'll quit complaining. Or that we just leave them, uh, leave them to their own resources and not associate with them, that we won't have to be bothered with all of that complaining. That doesn't happen here. There's not a group of people here that are hoping these, hoping these Hellenistic Jews would just go someplace else. You know, if they don't like the ways, then just go someplace else. Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, Paul says, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. That's what Paul was telling Christians and how they ought to act. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6, in the solution of this problem. Thirdly, the complainers didn't start a new church. The apostles did not dismiss insignificantly what was being brought to them. The church didn't shun those who were complaining. They as well wanted to solve the problem and were willing to do it exactly in the way the apostles suggested, that it pleased the whole multitude that these Greek-speaking Jews would be put, Christian men would be put in charge of that. But then the complainers themselves, you see, didn't say, well, at the time in which this was going on, simply say, well... You know, we'll just go someplace else. We know we're not like you. We know that you don't really care about us like you care about your own people. So we'll just go someplace else. That's how a lot of problems are solved among Christians today, isn't it? We'll just go someplace else. This is, let me suggest to you that when Christians divide and start new groups over problems and the fact that people are unwilling to resolve their problems, that's not church growth. That's going the other way. Well, there might be a new congregation in town, but that's not church growth. Not as it was happening here in Acts, in the first chapters of Acts. The disciples were multiplying and churches were growing because of the preaching of the gospel, not because Christians couldn't get along and couldn't resolve their problems. New churches are a testimony to the ability of Christians to work together, not a testimony or a sign that they can't work together. And there are some places in this, I believe, in this in this country where you could go, and there are myriads of churches all around town, all different places. It's not a testimony to the preaching of the word of God, but to the fact that people simply are unwilling to solve their problems. They just go someplace else. That didn't happen here. I'm suggesting to you that that probably never crossed their mind, because they were devoted to the unity of God's church. 
into resolving these differences and obstacles in their way and they recognized what the apostles were saying was absolutely true. The first priority was preaching the word of God and prayer and that there are individuals who could take care of this other problem and resolve this obstacle and get it out of the way in a spiritual way and the church could go on preaching the word of God. The result then was a united and growing church. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know, it thrills me when God wins out. Does it you? And we see it throughout here in the book of Acts, the early chapter of Acts. There's this problem comes along and there's people that confront God and, and blaspheme Him and try to get the word of God to people to quit preaching and teaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Innocent people suffer and Stephen stoned and all these things happen to try to thwart the church. And what does Luke tell us over and over again? God wins out. That Satan's attempts to derail the preaching of the word of God fail in every respect. Now that's not always the case with us. That's certainly what takes place here in the first chapters of Acts. But sometimes we allow obstacles and complaints, we allow problems to cause us to lose our focus. And so the preaching of the Word of God sometimes is diminished. We turn our attention towards ourselves and believe that these are the things that are more important that we have to take care of. And we leave off the mission to teach the lost and bring in people that are not saved. The church, the church, the church in Jerusalem did not fail prey to this, you see, attempt to distract their attention. The church solved this problem. And even if we look at what Luke is telling us, he's telling us not only was the church growing, but its evangelistic efforts was reaching out in more powerful ways than ever before. The priests were being converted. Now what that relates to, you see, is that among the priests, you see, were the most obstinate retractors to the Word of God before. Could could this new gospel actually penetrate into the deepest sections of the Jewish religion that stand opposed to it and that the priests themselves would become Christians? That's what Luke is saying. How? Because they didn't give up preaching the word of God and praying. They didn't abandon that ministry. So the solution that this text promotes is serving others in the manner in which we are capable to serve others. Some can teach the word, others can serve tables. Both of those individuals need to do what they're called to do. Both servants are necessary for the growth of the church. We have to strive to remain together and be united in our mission and not allow these obstacles to get in our way. Let me end with a passage that we studied a few minutes, a few weeks ago. I believe it certainly fits here. Paul describing unity in the work of the church, he says, and he personally, Jesus Christ, personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ Till we all reach a unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is our head, Jesus Christ. From Him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Paul's words here are not only poignant, but they are very to the point. In the sense that Paul's painting to us a picture of a functioning body that's able to survive and able to thrive because every part of the body does its job. That's a beautiful, poignant picture that's presented to us about the Lord's church in more than one occasion. But it's also to the point. 
Because the very thing that threatens the work of the church is the aspect of improper leadership and the unwillingness of individuals to stay and to fit in their role and to do what God has given them to do to the best of their ability. And that's, I think, what was in place here in the threat of Acts chapter 6. And certainly what God, was, what God overcame through the presentation, you see, of the solution. Spiritual men serving the church, doing their job. Thank you for your attention this morning. If you're not a child of God, we want to invite you to be uh, receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died for you and he rose again on the third day. You need, if you're not a Christian, to turn away from a life of sin and serving yourself with a desire and a faith in Jesus Christ to please Him, repent of your sins, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins that you might be a child of God. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.